Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. Well, I'm looking with you at Matthew 22. I was much aware that uh, your pastor is going through Mark, and I didn't want to trample on territory that he would be covering in future days, and I'm not, because the parable that we're looking at, the parable of the wedding feast, is not treated by Mark, even though there's a lot of overlapping territory between those two Gospels. There is a, another parable of Jesus, similar, a little different, but similar in Luke 14, but This one is unique to Matthew. So listen as I read Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed these murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The grass withers and the flower fades and the word of our God abides forever. Well, I've certainly observed that the past 50 years in American life have brought about a widespread development of informality in the clothing that people wear in public these days. Dressed in a pair of ragged jeans and a t-shirt, either a man or a woman can appear in many public venues today and no one will think them not dressed correctly. Among the few exceptions to the general trend of dressing down is still a wedding. Now, there are some pretty informal weddings, but for the most part, you'll go to a wedding and the bridal party, at least, is wearing expensive clothing. Um, The father of one daughter only, who uh, almost fell backwards out of a chair when I heard my daughter's ideas of what a wedding gown ought to cost. And then she proved to be my daughter by only spending a couple hundred, which is really quite cheap. But as you may know, even Westminster, if 
Uh, there would have been a lot more ties on men on a summer Sunday in this church, and I'm not saying that's a good standard or a bad standard. It's just a different standard. And by the way, men, if anybody uh, really lacks ties for your business wear, I have about 50-plus that are not being used. Maybe we can work out some kind of a deal that would uh, bring me some income. I, I ask you today a serious question. Have you thought about what you will wear at the judgment seat of God? Either when Christ returns and the judgment of this world gets underway, or when you die, and like others in this congregation, in just in the last couple of weeks, go to face their Savior. Have you thought about what you will wear at the judgment seat of God? Maybe sharpening the question, are you spiritually dressed right now in advance of the wedding banquet of Christ, the Lamb of God? Matthew 22 was spoken by Jesus. It's got sharp confrontational words in it because the contentions that he has had with the scribes and Pharisees in particular are really rising now to a final crescendo in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And he is not uh, speaking only soft words. If you look at the last couple verses of what I read, verse 14 in particular, very sharp and confrontational. And Jesus was just about out of patience with the Pharisees who thought that salvation before God was their possession only because of their ethnic belonging to the people of Israel and that nobody else could enter into that exclusive domain of salvation. He was confronting that and speaking plainly now about those things. And he was telling them about what we could really describe as a robe of righteousness that they needed to wear or anyone needed to wear who was going to be recognized as one of the elect of God, chosen of God, as he ends there in, in verse 14. A robe of righteousness is needed, and it's not obtained simply by being a son or daughter of Israel. Well, first of all, just quickly on, the, on verses 1 to 7 here, I want you to look at those who would not come to a wedding. You can't say they could not. There was no real justification preventing them, but they would not come. And there's a sense in which the word of it went out. You know, we have today a, a new, rather new habit with people's crowded schedules. I find folks with weddings send out a card, or usually a, a card or something, about two, three months before the wedding that says, save the date. That's a good idea with people's crowded schedules today. You know, we're anticipating being married, whatever, August 15th, and you want to know that people can perhaps circle the date and set it aside. Something akin to that went on here first. The word went out that uh, the wedding would be coming at a particular time. The time was near, and the word went out then the second time around, come, come to the wedding, this is the day. Uh, everything's ready, the food is being fixed, you're welcome, we want you to come. And you have this outrageous reaction from people who paid no attention, it says, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And if you actually would read the Luke version of this, Luke 14 
develops it even more and says, well, I just married a wife. Oh, I just bought a team of oxen. I have to try them out. Uh, and they're all rather false-sounding excuses because they would not come. Not that they could not. They would not. And so precipitates action by the host to see what he could do to fill his banquet hall. And of course, you're to see that this whole parable structure, that the host, the king, is God. Jesus is telling us here a fictional story, but an illustrative parable of the action of God, who is ready to have a great banquet for the marriage of his son to the church whom he was on earth to provide salvation for. And the warning is here that God is not going to be endlessly patient with the original invitees if they cannot respond and come. And so the, the Lord, the host of the feast, we read in verse 7, has a very harsh response of his own and sends out troops to actually kill these people who were killing his messengers. And many would say that that is a warning not too veiled by Jesus of what was coming for the nation of Israel. Because we know that in A.D. 70, not that long after the death of Christ, Rome had lost about all its patience with the Jews in uh, Israel and sent troops under General Titus who killed about, it's estimated, a million men, women, and children of Israel and really wiped out the, the temple system of sacrifice and worship from that day forward. You can go today and maybe you say, well, I visited the temple. No, you didn't. You at best uh, touched some very large stones that are the sub-basement wall of the temple because Rome tore the whole thing down and it's never been rebuilt and we think never will be rebuilt for the same purpose again for which it was originally built. Titus came in, wiped it out, and the nation of Israel, for all practical purposes, did not exist beyond that time until modern days. Now you might say, well, how could God be so warlike, so angry, and sponsor such rampant cruelty, it might sound like to you, against people who would not respond to the coming of his son? Well, I would say you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, how could much-warned human beings refuse many, many privileged opportunities offered to them for centuries through the prophets who came and they rejected and killed? The prophets who went to Israel were the people, the messengers who were killed in this parable. So secondly, we look at the re replacement wedding guests who are freely invited to fill the seats at the banquet. Now, God wants his banquet to happen, and he's going to have it happen, according to this parable of Jesus. And he says, go out and get me some guests. Go down the alleys, go into the markets, go to the farms, whoever you find. Tell them you don't need money to come, you don't need high-born uh, high status or anything of that kind. You don't need uh, high spirituality. Everybody, it says, bad and good, implying that even their prior morality, perhaps, is not a qualification. 
have them come, bid them come. And so that is what goes on here. And of course, hinting at the great commission of Christ, which is stated later, we know in Matthew 28, that says, go and make disciples of all nations. This is a a pro-introduction, pre-introduction for the great commission. The Bible tells us God's long-term plan and sovereign election includes all kinds of people from every race and language and tribe. I'm sorrowing that I'm not going to be able to be with you next week because I have to be in Ephrata at their worship when I hear of the unique worship. This church is, you better come next week, folks. I'm, I'm telling you, this church has never quite seen a worship service like it's prepared for you next week with the Congolese folks and the, the Nepali folks and the, and the others. This is heaven. This is a foretaste of heaven. God gathering his banquet guests. Hosea 2.23 tells of the Lord saying, I will call those who are not my people, my people. And to her who is not beloved, I will cry out, my beloved. God's beloved are going to gather here as I hear it next Sunday. Don't miss it. Jesus spoke this parable shortly before his death because he knew that he was going to do what would make ready for this universal call for people to come and be drawn to wear the robe of righteousness that he was going to die to prepare. The proud and arrogant of the world might spurn the offer of the gospel extended in Christ. They have done so. They're doing so today, left and right and all over the place. But they will be replaced by the lowliest ones of earth who will come of their free will. The king of the ages will fill the souls and overwhelm the souls of those who are truly his elect people, those whose choice for him are known to him. And they will be known as they step forward and repent and show faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that justifies them. A new birth will come upon these people. And unlike those who refused to come and killed the servants and did all that, they will gladly come and crowd in and fill God's heavenly banquet hall. So we come to what is, I think, the prime focus of this parable, which is the last part, this one man, starting in verse... uh, Sorry, my eyesight's failing me here. Verse 11, I guess it is. Uh, the gate crasher in ragged clothes. And Jesus said the host king entered the banquet hall to survey, hopefully with satisfaction, the fact that many now had, had responded and were there enjoying the banquet. But right away, his eye fixed upon one man, the only one present who still wore his ordinary street clothing. I'll imagine that this guy was a farmer. Maybe he had good old Lancaster County bib overalls. You can't see because I've got my robe on, but I wear suspenders most of the time now. Decided I need suspenders to fit into Lancaster County. I'm getting weird. (laughs) And the king said to this man, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then we're a little upset, I think, as you read this, that he gets treated with the harshest possible 
treatment. Bind him hand and foot. Cast him into outer darkness, for many are called and few is chosen. Does this puzzle you? You say, well, wait a minute. Why is this guy being picked on like this? And after all, the king said anyone could come in right off the streets. Any poor, unwashed citizen who had no money to buy a new T-shirt or anything else. So how come the dress code is being enforced so harshly against this one man? How do we explain this? It's not as hard an explanation as it seems, but there's something in here that was well known in that day that is not necessarily well known to you and me in our culture. And many of the earliest Bible commentators and other reliable commentators believe this is the answer, and I join them. A simple key issue is that first century hearers would have understood, even if we don't, the custom of that day. The custom was... If you were a wealthy person and you were going to entertain guests of a lowlier status and not as rich as you, you would want to put on the best banquet you could, like this guy was doing. But you would provide for your guests, particularly the common people, a change of clothing as they came to your banquet. There at the door, there might be a rack of silks and satins and wool, fine wool clothing, maybe trimmed with fur, uh, things that were you know, not known to the average common person, but uh, something that gave them the chance to say, wow, I was at the king's banquet and you should have seen me and my wife. Wow. He gave us these wonderful robes to wear. Now you say, how do you know this is true? Well, we know it because it was a habit of that day. Other cultural clues tell it. And how else can we explain the fact that everybody else in the hall had fine things to wear? One man must have pushed his way through the door and said, I'm not like my lackey neighbors who bow and scrape before this rich guy. I don't need to dress according to his standard. He told me to come, and I'm coming just the way I am. That's what I see of this guy. He just didn't feel he needed to kowtow to somebody's artificial dress coat and have a fine wool robe to cover his farmer's overalls. Uh, You say, well, you can't prove that. I can only prove it in that it satisfies all the needs of understanding that this problem poses. And, And certainly there are early witnesses that testify to this practice. But you see how this man has an additional level of arrogance really almost worse than the other people who were supposed to come and wouldn't and refused in their arrogance. Here's a man who had no reason to be there. He was not on the original guest list. The privilege of being there was extended to him and rich terms to be there and enjoy himself, eat to the full, and go home with a fine wool robe to wear. But he didn't want it, and he arrogantly insisted that... Nobody had to tell him how to dress for an important occasion. Well, how do we see anything for ourselves out of this parable? Let me first uh, give you a little illustration that I developed something from. Several weeks ago, I guess about three weeks ago, my wife and I were summoned to our son Paul's home in Mannheim Township. And uh, we, we get these summonses to a family photo opportunity. Come a particular evening, right after dinner, 
in the early evening, bring your camera, Mom and Dad. So we jumped and ran and got there in time with cameras. And uh, when we drove in the driveway and got out of the car, our cars at Paul's home, there on the porch was uh, our oldest grandson of, of that family. His name happens to be the same as mine. And uh, Michael was dressed in a tuxedo. I've never seen any grandchild of mine in a tuxedo before. And boy, he looked good. I said he gets at least an eight on the Pierce Brosnan scale of a handsome man. (laughs) He looked good. But then we were only there a couple minutes and when the front door opened and a young lady came out of the house to join Michael. And she was from this congregation, but I'm not going to embarrass her. But she uh, was on Michael's arm with a sparkling smile and a sparkling gown full-length gown, and I thought to myself, wow, Michael, you did good. (laughs) And uh, this now is not an eight, it's a ten plus. A beautiful young lady who outdid Cinderella at the ball, as far as I'm concerned. Now, of course, these two were dressed for the senior prom. And they achieved, in my mind, the high school pinnacle of charm and grace and handsomeness and beauty, surpassing anything I would have expected of them. But as I thought about that evening and I was studying this text, I thought, well, what if Michael and his lovely date thought that they were dressed that evening good enough to present themselves before God, the King of Heaven? Here we are, God. We're really dressed in the best we could supply. Our family thinks we look pretty good to take a lot of pictures of us. And surely you're impressed, God, because we are so lovely and handsome on this day. Well, the Bible tells me that in salvation terms, God sees us. He sees inside us, not just outside. And he sees us in our Garden of Eden state ragged and dirty and guilty of rebellion and trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves. Every one of us from birth has a sinful nature. Every one of us follows the nature of Adam and Eve in disobeying God, devising ways to do things that are not God's ways. And we imagine that we can parade ourselves before others and say, look, here's all you need to be accepted by God. Have a nice, clean life. Obey the commandments. Be honest in your business. Be kind to other people. And your character and your reputation will get you through when you have to pass judgment with the King of Heaven. Well, folks, it ain't that way. I hope you haven't been attending this church for years thinking that that's the way to impress God. Because the scripture says, and it's certainly been said from the pulpit of this church for many years, that the spiritual clothing you must have to enter the marriage supper of Christ, the Lamb of God, cannot be found in your home closet, cannot be rented at any men's shop, cannot be bought at any women's deluxe dress store. Isaiah 61.10 has the word of the prophet of God about it, testifying what we need As Isaiah the prophet said, My God has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. 
What is the robe of righteousness? Well, it happens to be something that was won for us on our behalf by Jesus, the Son of God, who won it on a certain occasion that you know well about. When he submitted his body and clothes were stripped off him, he submitted himself to whips and blood and grime, putrid abuse and bitter death, and then rose again. And he came forth as the distributor of robes of righteousness for all who belong to him by grace through faith and the working of God in their lives. Revelation 19.7 says this, Let us be glad and triumphant and give him, Christ, the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen was given her to wear, bright and clean, for fine linen indicates the righteousness of the saints. And so the question comes back to you. Are you dressed for the great wedding event of the ages? Are you dressed right now? Not just will you quickly grab something and think you'll get dressed when you have a few hours warning that that day is coming. Are you dressed for the great wedding event of the ages right now? For there'll be no deception in the final judgment of God. His unerring eye will discern who his true people are and who they are not. And when the Father looks upon a Christian believer, he will see and does see right now, not our native rags, but transferred righteousness from the crucified, risen Jesus as a grand cloak to be obtained only from him, totally free and by his grace. And there's no excuse for not having it as your adornment. There are countless people who think, they still think today, you know, you can dress up in garments of good deeds, you can graduate, and I know there are graduates among us here, high school and college graduates just weeks ago, or maybe it's still to come for you, but soon you were dressed in the school colors of a robe of your high school and and proudly marched with others, and you thought, great, I finally got this accomplishment out of my way. I, I can be known now as a high school graduate. Well, guess what? Most of the people in the world have already achieved that, or at least in the Western world. And uh, they're not, everybody's not so impressed, unfortunately. God be with you, those who are going to college. But be sure you're realistic about that, because in four years, you'll put on another robe, and you'll march up and you'll say, I've got my Bachelor of Science now. I'm an engineer. I'm somebody in the world. Guess what? You'll still be scrambling for a job. And then maybe some of you will have the ultimate kind of robe and get some tassels and sashes and special things involved. And I've got my doctorate now. Well, folks, doctorates are a dime a dozen. I'm glad if you get one. I worked hard to get one. But it doesn't get you anything before the throne of God. I can assure you of that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 2, Paul said, his fervent prayer looking beyond the hour of his death was that he, quote, would be clothed with a heavenly dwelling so we will not be found naked, exposed to judgment. And then in 521, that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 521, Paul defined every Christian's secure hope as he wrote this, for our sake, God made him 
to be sin. You get those two little words? There are only five letters. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's biblical salvation in one sentence. God made Christ to be sin so that in him, if we belong to him and bow before him and love him and honor him, we might become the righteousness of God. Not moral achievement, not, not passing you know, grade on the commandments, not kindness, not goodness, not happiness. Those are all good things, of course. But they're not the robe of righteousness. And without the robe of righteousness, you see the harsh standard Jesus Christ himself held, had, held up here. That this individual who scorned the garment and didn't wear one was bound and cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. People just don't believe in hell today. When will there be revival? When people actually understand that the alternative to the righteousness of God in Christ is hell. I can't soften it. Christ himself said it right here. And our passage ends here when it says, Many are were invited, but few are chosen. Are you one of the chosen? You say, well, how would I know? You'd know if you had come to Christ and said, I repent of a life of things unworthy of you, O Christ. I look to you who was all grace and all righteousness and all goodness on my behalf, and I beg you, save me for your dear sake. And if you'd done that, you have put on Christ. You have put on the wedding garment. It may not feel like it for you all the time. There will be days when you say, boy, I don't feel like I'm Christ's disciple. Well, congratulations. I've got a lot of those days. But at the end of the day, I know that what my God and Savior has promised me is true. Are you confident today that you're presently, this moment, before you go to college, dressed for the greatest wedding banquet of all by bowing low before the King of Heaven in repentance and faith, you will understand why believers sing today and we sing in this worship service with joy and confidence, dressed in His righteousness alone. His, not mine, His. Faultless, I'll stand before the throne. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we hear from your Son, the one for whom the, the banquet of all time is going to be held, that the terms are coming through him. Father, there almost surely are some here today that either never knew that before or thought they could blow past you at the door and say, I don't need that salvation that preacher's talking about. Break their hearts, Father. Break their stubbornness, break their arrogance, and show them what it means to wear the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, 
And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.